except that I passively can follow Russian. So, in the debate should be easy, maybe I will not even need a translation. Just don't be mad at me if often my answer to you would be probably what I will refer to now is an older generation. When I was young, they were shown on our TV old Soviet cartoons on that giant, no? And like, you remember that legendary answer, no, pagadi? No, of maybe this will be my answer. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> I hope you will not be disappointed because I will try to be a little bit provocative in the sense of not just deploring the great revolutionary past, but displaying some problems. First, I hope later it will get more amusing, a little bit boring introduction. In his State and Revolution, which is a kind of preparatory work for the October Revolution, Lenin, as we all know, outlines his vision of the workers' state where every kuharka, not simply a cook, as it is usually translated, especially not a great chef, but more a modest woman servant in the kitchen of a wealthy family, where every kuharka we have to learn how to rule the state, where everyone, even the highest administrator, will be paid the same wages as ordinary workers, and so on, and so on. How this vision turned into its opposite soon after the October Revolution is the stuff of numerous analyses. But I would like to raise another question, which, as far as I know, is not often confronted. The fact that when Lenin tries to justify with some normative set of, with some set of values, the revolution, he, and I mean this more in a critical way, he sounds, his utopian vision sounds very Habermasian. But I mean, Jürgen Habermas, communicational theory. L uh, uh, Lenin says that what the revolution should do is establish, establish a society where, I quote, English translation of course, where the elementary rules of social intercourse that have been known for centuries and repeated for thousands of years in all copybook vaccines, these rules in communism, they will finally be accepted in a non-distorted way. So you see, it's very interesting and surprising. It's, not, it's as if Lenin, in some kind of strange temporal, traveling back forth, read in advance Habermas's theory of communicative action and said, okay, that's my normative basis. Of course, that's not his only position, but it's interesting that this is what he mentions. He says another quote, that only in a communist society, I quote now, Lenin again, freed from capitalist slavery, from the untold horrors, savagery, absurdities, and infamies of capitalist exploitation, people will gradually become accustomed to observing 
the, again, the elementary rules of social intercourse that have been known for centuries and repeated for thousands of years. They will become accustomed to observing them, obeying these rules, without force, without coercion, without subordination, without the special apparatus for coercion called the state. I find this almost touching how the normative reference of Hegel is some simple and in a very non-historical way, allegedly eternal ethics of what Habermas calls transfreie communication, undistorted communication. Uh, so a page or so later, Lenin again states that, quote, we know that the fundamental social cause of excesses, which consists in the violation of the rules of social intercourse, is the exploitation of the people. Again, the idea is, and I don't agree with it, this idea that there are some rules of social intercourse which are not in themselves immanently twisted, distorted, but that it's, as it were, from, for external reasons, social inequalities, domination and so on, that these rules are not obeyed. Again, does this mean that revolution is normatively grounded in some kind of universal rules which function as eternal human nature? I claim that the role to, of, to, of this reference is not simply negative. Don't forget that this Lenin's preoccupation with elementary rules of social intercourse can be discerned even in his critical remarks on Stalin's brutal manners from the last month of his life. You know that famous letter that Lenin wrote uh, uh, proposing to, uh, to, to, to fire Stalin from the post of general secretary. Okay, we all know this, and I don't want even to exaggerate this, like, who the great genius of Lenin, he saw it, okay, obviously he saw it a little bit too late, maybe, you know. <laughs> what else? What people, at least I'm not aware of anyone noticing that uh, Lenin's basic reproach to Stalin is not uh, wrong politics or whatever, it's simply this guy does not have good manners. And I think that without any irony, we should take Lenin serious here, today. Le can you imagine Lenin's shock at Donald Trump and so on? <laughs> like, that's another topic, let me go on. But the reference to human nature is not Lenin's last word. In another passage of State and Revolution, it looks as if Lenin claims almost the opposite. He surprisingly uh, grounds the famous difference between the lower and the higher stage of communism, not as it's usually done in the development of productive forces, you know, when productive forces are not yet enough developed, we just have socialism, where there is money, alienation, and so on and so on. No, only in the higher stage where there will be enough abundance there will be communism. No, Lenin grounds this difference in simply different relation to human nature again. In the first lower stage, we are still dealing with the human nature 
which he inherited from the entire history of exploitation and class struggle. While what will happen in the higher stage communism is that human nature itself will be changed. Another quote. We are not utopians. We do not indulge in dreams of dispensing at once with all administration, with all subordination. These anarchist dreams serve only to postpone the socialist revolution until human nature has changed. No, we want the socialist revolution with human nature as it is now, with human nature that cannot dispense with subordination, control and managers. The United Workers themselves will hire their own technicians and so on and so on and so on. So Lenin's point is that we still need domination, secret police, whatever you want, because of our imperfect human nature. And that communism does not mean, not even primarily abundance, but a change of human nature. Again, the interesting point here is that ambiguities enter here. I don't have time to go into it, but do you know that? I think Lenin should be read here against the background of a strange temptation in all revolutions, okay, all, the two big ones, Russian and Chinese, to elevate this first stage where there was uh, a lot of poverty, despair, and so on. This, so I think the term was wartime communism. No, where to a temptation to see already in this extreme poverty the seeds of communism. For example, uh, this of course is cynical, uh, but the usual development of communist regimes was formed from this extreme poverty of warlike communism, which was much closer to some abstract idea of communism, to a later stage, so-called gulash communism, where you get more, a little bit more private life, individual freedoms, and so on and so on. I, uh, for example, do you know that in the utmost poverty of the great cultural, no, not even the revolution, already before, the great leap forward in China, the idea was they are already in communism. Because they claimed the definition of communism is uh, each according to his abilities or her, and to each according to his or her needs. And they say that's what's happening, okay, in a twisted way, that you are in a commune totally enslaved there, but the boss of the commune, no, that's I'm the boss, you are. Uh, I look at you and I say, this is what you need, a little bit of food every day, so you are provided according to your needs, and then I say, okay, your abilities are to work 14 hours a day, so. You know, they literally uh, uh, justified it as already communism. And I think that, uh, so that uh, uh, the actual history almost went the other way around. They began with a kind of a communist utopia, we can do it now, and then socialism. If by socialism we mean more commercialized society and so on, where money matters, came as, a second, as the second highest stage. And there are real problems here. Like, I think that the greatest loss of when socialism fell apart were the best political jokes. 
So my favorite, one of my favorite is in mid-30s, uh, in Politburo they debate, maybe you know it, I'm sorry, if there will be uh, money or not in communism. Okay, you have right-wingers, Bukharin partisans who say, of course, money is natural, you need money to distribute things, there will be money. Then you have leftists who say, no, money is alienation, production will be immediately socialized in communism, there will be no money. Then Comrade Stalin intervenes and said, no, you are rightist and leftist deviation. The truth is the dialectical synthesis, there will be money and there will not be money. <laughs> and then people ask, oh, what a genius idea, but come on, Stalin, tell us how this will work. Well, you can guess what Stalin answers. It's very simple. Some people will have money, other people <laughs> will not have money. No. So I think that uh, uh, now it's easy to laugh at this, but and Lenin was fully aware of these problems. Now, to provoke you, especially those from the West, I would say that our greatest enemy, maybe, but it's your compatriot who emigrated there, Ayn Rand, you know that, pure apologist of capitalism, Atlas Shark and so on, she nonetheless said something which was Marx was also aware of, that in spite of all the alienation that money brings, money, money relations, nonetheless imply at least a formal, minimal freedom. If I pay you to work for me or vice versa, means that at least in a formal, legal way, I don't exert direct domination over you. I just say, okay, if you want, of course, you are effectively forced to work for me. But the form is that of freedom. And Ayn Rand says that if you abolish money, now, that's her wager. We, if we are still in some sense communists, we don't believe this. But nonetheless, there is certain truth in it that if situations are still socially those of dominations, so if you abolish this media domination through money, where we are at least formally free, you get immediate domination. You get direct domination. Wasn't this the lessons of Stalinist Soviet Union? Okay, money did matter then. then. But nonetheless, I, don't, I think that uh, something that was happening there, and this would be a wonderful research topic for some of you, I would like to do it, to look now what we have today, the most postmodern tendencies and so on, to see the search for it in Soviet Union. For example, all this post-human bullshit that we are bombarded with today, but you know that in that, uh, how should I call it, even technognosticism, even Trotsky was partisan of it, in the mid-twenties, we already had all that. Even Trotsky subscribed to the program that the big task of communism is to biologically, genetically change the nature of man to get a new post-human form. Trotsky says in a quote that I often refer to something like, and then we will be able to say homo sapiens goodbye. You are not a good machine, we need to move further. Uh, so again, uh, you have this tendency now to provoke you again. I would say that here Stalin almost did something to, I mean this in a very provocative way, I don't in any way want to praise Stalin, but to rehumanize the dimension. 
Because, you know, the official ideology of those, how should I call them, techno-agnostic uh, uh, people who wanted uh, to overcome uh, old human nature and so on, was not to talk about moral responsibility anymore. It was like, we are just conditioned animals and we should be reframed. They didn't, for them, this culpability and so on, all that, was an old category. And uh, but, uh, Stalin's, the Stalinist turn in late 20s, early 30s, brought back all this up to family values, punishment, and so on. Purges are not are maybe the worst thing that can happen to you. But they nonetheless rely on the notion of human responsibility. You are guilty. That's why. I would say maybe it's almost more horrible to claim you are not guilty, you are just wrongly conditioned or whatever, and so on and so on. So this we find there. Now, if you saw the film, which I think is interesting, Blade Runner 49, not that I agree with it, but it opens up interesting problems. This idea of post-human androids who work for us. You know, do you know Soviet history? There was a biologist called, uh, 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 called uh, I think, Ilya Vasilyev or something like this, from late 20s, who already, and was vastly financed by Stalin, uh, had the idea, and he was the follower of Bogdanov, the one attacked by Lenin, that maybe through coupling, organizing sex orgies between apes, orangutans, and men, we will be able to give birth to a perfect worker. They will talk, but they will not want any trade unions or whatever, or freedom. They will just be perfect workers, and in view of that hunger in the 20s, also they will not mind what kind of food they are eating and so on. And a lot of money was invested. This guy was then sent, they made an expedition to Congo. Of course, this project was fully racist and made Soviets. Because first, it was the automatic idea that human males should screw fuck the orangutan women. No? Why not the other way around? <laughs> and second, that it should be done by blacks from Congo. Because, you know, they are closer to etc. Maybe to less. But then, okay, it didn't work. The guy, unfortunately, ended up in Gulag a few weeks ago. That's another story. No, but what I wanted to say is that, and it's not only that, Nazis were doing the same, giving to elite soldiers special pills. American army, not only American, but about them we at least know, is doing the same. I read that they already made genetic also, a true, a true chemotherapy changes it so that they have pilots who can fight with full mobility for 72 hours and so on. So this idea of a uh, uh, of, uh, post-human society. I'm sorry I don't have time to go into it, but it was part of Soviet utopia, and I think that today something quite shocking is happening. Uh, that, uh, you know, usually we say, 
Capitalism is a historical phenomenon, while being human is more trans-historical. Sorry, but the way things look today is almost the opposite. It's that maybe our humanity is historical. I claim quite seriously that post-humanity is not stuff of total idiots like Ray Kurzweil and all those uh, uh, fake theorists of, you know, singularity as we will all become one, one entity with big consciousness. I think that that prospect nonetheless is coming close to actualization. And that the big problem of capital today is how to manage in its different aspects this passage to post-humanity. Let's call it post-human capital. All states, United States, China and so on, are already deeply engaged in it. In what sense? Two things. First, you know that with new digitalization of our entire life, Soon, but in some countries now already, you have digital control which knows you better than you know yourself. And it's done to such an extent, I like to follow this. For example, in the United States, I spoke with some researchers who told me they did this in the level of sexuality. They got couples who agreed to be controlled passively, what they think, what they say, and then they were in love. And then when they married, the digital machinery, supercomputer, who controlled them, made a, made a forecast, like this couple should marry or not. They didn't tell it to the couple. They just returned to the couple two years later. Computer was always right. Now nobody says that computers are perfect. And just saying that they are much better than we. And they did the same thing, for example, with uh, doctors. We know that there are great doctors, but a computer diagnosis is much better than an ordinary doctor, and so on. Then uh, they did the same with politics. We, as liberal free subjects, we usually, just before elections, through some uh, spin manipulations and so on usually vote quite often against our interests. They did the same experiment. They took some ordinary people and allowed the computer to follow their complaint, their attitudes, and then it's a sad news for the left. The computer's decision for whom you should vote was much more to the left than of the person itself. The person itself got into some scare of terrorism, whatever bullshit, and become more conservative. So again, I am not saying it's not as simple as that. I am not saying should the computers run us or whatever. No, computers do have their own problems and so on. Uh, and you know where I You know what I will do. Do you have a KGB list of the people here? <laughs> I propose you a deal. I get lost in my improvisations, you stop me. But I have digitally all I wanted to say. What if I send it to you and you give it to the people? So that I don't have a bad conscience for talking here. But what you know when I debate with computer scientists, you know what fascinated me? There is a joke that I used quite a lot, maybe I didn't use it here the last time I was here in Leningrad 
You know this. No Petersburg for me. <laughs> Moscow. You know, from uh, the uh, Hollywood uh, classical movie Ninochka, there is a very simple story there, a uh, joke told there. Okay, it gets in the story more complicated, this doesn't matter for us. It's that uh, the hero stops, uh, goes to a cafeteria and says, can I get uh, uh, coffee without cream, please? And you must know the answer that he gets. Sorry, we don't have cream, so I cannot give you coffee without cream. We only have milk, so I can give you coffee without milk. Now, if you want to understand Hegel, what Hegel thinks about by this term, big, uh, bestimmte negation, determinate negation, this is it, that it matters what you are not. It's part of, so, of your identity. We have three types of coffee. Simple coffee, coffee without milk, coffee without cream. Although they are materially the same, they are not the same, really. Negation matters. I incidentally, there is, I don't know if you had it also, from Poland I heard it, a wonderful joke from the time of socialism, which, referring to the fact that often you didn't get things in the stores, it reproduces the same joke. It's that somebody comes to a store and says, uh, do you have, let's say, whatever, butter or you don't have butter? And the, the person there selling things says, sorry, you are in the wrong store. We are not the store which doesn't have butter. That one is across the street. We are the store which doesn't have toilet paper. <laughs> so now I don't have the, the, uh, the time to lose here, so I will just say that and I'm not bluffing here. I spoke with computer programmers, those who did artificial intelligence. This, can a computer make a difference between coffee and coffee without milk and coffee without cream? I doubt, they also doubt that it can. You know, uh, or to put it in this way, can, do we already have computer programs which deal with, in this sense, virtuality? With, can it include into what you say all the, all the implied uh, negations and so on? I already know, uh, yes, the most important writer here for me, for the problems already, back to Lenin, of early Leninism is for me, and he's for me one of the three mega guys of 20th century literature. It's Beckett, not Joyce. Joyce was laughing, I think. <laughs> Beckett, Samuel Beckett, Kafka, and Andrei Platonov. He's mega. And I think that the great interest of his two mid-twenties novels, Kevinburg and Kotlovan, is that they already clearly see the, I don't want to use the word totalitarian, let's call it nihilist, dangerous, abyssal dimension of October Revolution, but not simply from a counter-revolutionary perspective. He is basically engaged in it, and he sees much further than later liberal critics of, uh, critics of communism and so on and so on. But maybe I'm losing time, so let's quickly go on. I have so many things to say. Uh, next point about Lenin. Uh, usually people like to oppose the decisionist Lenin of 1917. This is the madness. He just did it. And then the more pragmatic Lenin of 
the last years of his life. I think that, uh, and that's why I admire Lenin, it's much more contradictory and refined. I think that precisely the Lenin of 1917, in his practice at least, was not, uh, was not a utopia. He was just an incredible strategic thinker. When he heard about February Revolution, he saw a change there. And this wasn't any pseudo-Marxist bullshit about ooh, eternal historical law of progress passing to the higher state. He just saw an opening. And he was well aware, if we miss the chance, for 20, 30 years, nothing will happen. So Lenin was not simply a utopia. He was, in a good sense of the term, an extreme pragmatic opportunist. He saw the chance there. The true Lenin's despair, failed utopia, I think, happened later, in the early 20s, when the civil war was open, and then what to do then? When to, how to reconstruct the habits of daily life, and so on and so on. That's why I am tired with those leftists who admire this carnivalesque uh, dreams of wonderful million people dancing on the street, uh, 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 all rules are suspended, uh, the king is the beggar, the beggar is the king. That's easy. For me, a true revolution happens, as they say in American or English, I think, the morning after. How do ordinary people feel the change when things return, when things return back to normal? And Lenin was aware of this problem. And that's the disillusions late Lenin, where he mocks any idea of uh, socialism, where he says we just have to bring a little bit of civilization to Russia, uh, and so on, and so on. So again, this is for me uh, the spirit that, of course, I'm not uh, uh, trying to save to justify everything that Lenin did. But this utterly realist spirit. And Stalin here did a tremendous revolution. Lenin was extremely open. Jean-Claude Milner, in his otherwise conservative book, Revier la Revolution, to read again revolution, uh, uh, quotes a wonderful passage from Saint-Just, where Saint-Just says that to be a revolutionary, it's like to navigate an open sea without any card in an open territory. I think that if anything, Marx was too much caught in this historical teleology. And Lenin's actual approach was much more revolution is an uncharted territory. We have to make, as Lenin put it, all possible mistakes. We don't know where it will where it will uh, uh, take us, uh, and so on, and so on. So, uh, uh, to go on here, uh, I think that maybe this is also what Lenin learned from Hegel. You know, because this is for me one of the most beautiful encounters in the history of philosophy. Lenin didn't really, sorry to disappoint, to understand Hegel. If you read his philosophical notebooks, it's clear that his limit is the category of mutual influence, that should be a good. But nonetheless, 
I find it so nice, everything is important there. Look, Lenin was totally desperate after 1914, what does he do? Let's go to Switzerland and read Hegel, basically. <laughs> but which Hegel? Not as stupid historicist, pseudo-Marxist would have said some historical works or even phenomenology. He reads Hegel's logic, which Hegel himself designated it as, ironically of course, as the thoughts of God before God created the world. It's a wonderful lesson. Conservative Hegelians always preferred the historicist Hegel. Another thing that maybe Lenin learned from Hegel is historical openness. Breaking out, even if it's a Marxist one, of this historical teleology. You know, like, we just have with all complications, follow the law of history and so on. You know, in later Stalinist Marxism, this metaphor, they use this metaphor of riding the train of history, you know. Now here, maybe you know my standard joke, and then, based on this teleology, pseudo-Marxists often, when the situation is very tragic, they like to say, oh, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel, no? My answer is, you know which one, some of you probably, yes, there is a light, but... Usually, this light at the end of the tunnel is another train coming from So, you know, Hegel is supposed to be a conservative, but is he? There is a wonderful Leninist moment in Hegel, precisely where Hegel appears the most conservative. You know, at the end of his book of political philosophy, maybe, which is, but it's very problematic to call it that, Hegel's philosophy of right, in the end of the, not introduction, forward, I think, there is that famous idea that philosophy is like the whole of Minerva which takes off in the evening. And Hegel gives a concrete reading on this that philosophy cannot predict the future or deal with what should be. Philosophy can only analyze a form of life whose time has already passed. Now I ask you something. Hegel's system of state, this corporate state and so on in philosophy of right, is usually taken as his vision of society. And then people claim, wasn't Hegel there almost fascist, different states and so on. But my point is that either Hegel was a complete idiot, which nonetheless he wasn't, or he knew that this should help, should help also for his own book. It's clear that what he presents as a system in philosophy of right, it's not his blueprint for the future. It's just, that's what we can say about the potential rationality of a system which is dying already now. And Hegel was all the time aware that something new is happening and he was totally at a loss with it. For example, the last writing, written text by Hegel, was his panicky reaction to the British Reform Bill law, which introduced a little bit more egalitarian voting. For Hegel, this was catastrophe, step towards abstract universality, and so on, and so on. But what I'm trying to tell you is that Hegel's idea, and, Hegel, and in concrete predictions, Hegel was not an idiot. Look at the introduction to his lectures on philosophy of history, where, apropos, and this was, these lectures were give, given around 1800, 
15 or 20, when he speaks about Russia and in different places America, he says it's too early to say anything about these countries. Their century will be the next century, 20th. Not so bad. No, it wasn't the media. So what I'm saying is that Hegel is absolutely not this type of teleological progressist. Fukuyama is an idiot, my God. Even before you, Fukuyama, in my regime, goes to Gulag. You know? Don't take it seriously. No, seriously. What I want to say is that I think that Hegel is much more open here. See, history is much more open. And I think that, paradoxically, this is what Lenin learned from Hegel, really. To this opening radical. There is no simple necessity. Revolution is not inscribed into a series of events. It's just a matter of using an opportunity here and there and so on. So, how do we stand with this openness today? Now, part two, reference to today. Here I'm a little bit more pessimist. You know, the standard reproach to the left in power by radical leftists is that instead of effectively socializing production and deploy actual democracy, the left in power remains within the constraints of standard leftist politics, nationalizing means of production or tolerating capitalism in a social democratic way, imposing uh, an authoritarian dictatorship or playing the game of parliamentary democracy and so on and so on. I think the time has come, if you want to be Leninist today, to raise the brutal question. Okay. But what should or could they have done? How would the authentic mode of socialist democracy have looked in, in practice? And this is for me the sad lesson of, for example, of uh, Venezuela. Chavez was not just uh, Fidel Castro with money, in the sense of having enough money from oil and throwing it to, to not solve problems, but like calm down the situation. Uh, my friends of Venezuela, from Venezuela were sending me texts where it's clear how all the time, now it's over, it's another game, of Chavez rule, he was desperately making, you know, let's try this combined property, let's give the debt factory to the workers, and so on and so on. And let's be frank, the sad thing is that more or less it all, let's be frank, more or less, it all failed. So, I am simply, it's very brutal what I will say now. Where are we now with communist prospect? One answer is the Chinese official one. I almost laugh at it. They simply claim what we call global capitalism, they call it uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics, no? And for them, the tension now between China and their France and the United States is simply the Cold War, but not war, like the, it's simply the old war competition between capitalism and socialism in new form. For them, the economic success of China is not the proof that you need capitalism, but the proof precisely of the superiority of socialist system. Of course, you have to redefine so much communism. 
to fit it into this model. That uh, you don't get it. Uh, that uh, we should ask is it still socialism? But you know what is my target here? And I think Lenin, with his anti-utopian spirit, would have get it. You know all these complaints, like Chavez was not radical enough. Uh, he should have liquidated the local oligarchs or whatever. Or why didn't he move a step further and uh, introduce actual people's democracy and all that? You know. In 20, now, the main two versions of 20th century radical politics, socialism, are dismissed. Welfare state no longer works and Stalinist state socialism no longer works. Although, already with uh, Stalinism, it's a little bit more complicated. Once I had a debate years ago with Fukuyama, and he laughed so much when I told him, okay, I concede your point. Global capitalism won, but we you can see my point that the best managers of global capitalism today are ex-communists in power. <laughs> we are really, I think, moving to a new domain from you here, Russia, Putin's regime, to India, to Turkey, to China, where it's clear that liberal democracy is no longer the best form of capitalism. Capitalism works much better with some type of ethnocentric uh, authoritarian regime. But let's drop that. My idea is this one. I had the same idea when there was Occupy Wall Street movement and I was there uh, talking with many of them in New York, in, in the Zucchetti Park, and asked them always the same question, like the Freudian question, uh, uh, what do you... What does the woman want? Okay, want. My question was not woman, but what do you want? It's incredible that beyond this vague idea against uh, uh, financial capital, incidentally, every fascist will agree with it. <laughs> and, and all that uh, against corruption and so on, it was not even clear what they really want. It was more some kind of general, uh, general unease, but mostly it was moderate, I call them ironically, left Fukuyamaists. Like, they basically accepted liberal democratic capitalism, but they say, you know, we need more healthcare, more uh, tolerance, and so on and so on. So, uh, uh, this is the big question today. Can we even imagine? That's what is missing for me. I think that maybe, now I'm talking not about your situation, more in the United States and Western Europe, maybe this terrifying politically correct moralization of the left, you know, like I use a certain word, uh, racist, uh, uh, anti-feminist, homophobic and so on, is precisely a reaction to the fact that you don't have a, an alternate vision. Now, I'm not a utopian, I know you cannot get a vision which would be concrete, and so on. But just a general vision. Okay, we want true democracy, not alienated, multi-party democracy. How would this concretely look? We want no longer the alienated state, but everybody admits we need today global organizations to deal with, with uh, immigrant crisis, so-called, to deal with ecological crisis, and so on. 
we I claim no longer can play these games of you know local local self management. We live in a small community where we decide. No, what do we decide? We have to rely on larger structures to deal with ecology and so on and so on. How to organize it? How to do it? Most of the institutional left today, unfortunately, is conservative in the sense that their main goal is protecting the old achievements of welfare state, at least in Europe, and up to a point also with Democrats in United States, up to a point, it's more complex. But what I want to say is that, isn't it said that there are people who still talk about capitalism is coming to an end, there are signs of post-capitalist order. But you know who are they? The so-called progressive postmodern capitalists themselves, and they are the true enemy today, I think, even more maybe than Trump. People like Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, they are today's organic intellectuals of corporate capital. And they all of them talk about this. They, most of them even, you know, all these usual progressive causes, like they are all for LGBT plus, absolutely. They are, most of them are even, or practically all of them, they are even for, for the minimal income, call it this, basic income for everybody and so on. But it's clear what is happening there. They see very clearly that the capitalism, usual one, is coming to an end. And what they really try is to, they are for me the agents of what I would have called post-human capitalism. And the ironies are immense here. A month or two ago, I saw a speech, briefly, to boring to listen to all of it, that Mark Zuckerberg, the Facebook boss, uh, delivered to Princeton students. And he says there that his goal in life is to, our quote literal, our job is to create a sense of purpose among the people. Now I almost died laughing. A guy who invented Facebook, which is the greatest instrument to lose time in a totally purposeless way, he will now tell me this. So I claim, isn't this so sad how from one side we, capitalism is in real crisis, we have ecological problems, it's here to everybody, you cannot do this. We have even, I claim, the problem with profit extraction and private property. I buy here the theory of some leftists who claim, ask yourself a simple question. How did people like, how did, for example, Bill Gates become, although it's problematic now, he's still the richest person in the world. It's not classical profit. I claim it's return to rent. Uh, what is happening today with these corporations like Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, is that it's not simply just private property, it's that what Marx called general intellect, our shared intellectual substance, is privatized. And then you get rent. We are, when we buy a product for, from, for example, Windows, whatever word, from Microsoft, it's not he produces a commodity and then adds to the production costs a profit rate. The relationship between the price of Windows work program and production costs is irrelevant. We are simply charged, we pay rent so that 
we can be in contact with each other so that we get access to general intellect. It's a, it's a different, it's a different logic. So uh, I approach the end so that I don't get lost. Just one, two more points I would like uh, to make here. One would be that another tendency, which I already implicitly mentioned, is that in contrast to the usual pseudo-Marxist doxa, which says that today's capitalism is more and more virtual, like formally we are more and more free to do whatever you want, but all the profit is generated through speculations on futures in the virtual sphere and so on. But at the same time, as some intelligent uh, researchers demonstrated, I think it's a key tendency, that at the same time, with this, this not disappearance, but retreat of direct, direct wage relationship, where I'm paid a wage and so on, uh, uh, relations of direct personal dominations are returning. Not only in the obvious ways, like uh, refugees, uh, uh, slavery in third world countries, and so on and so on, but even in our countries, for example, in culture and some social spheres, money more and more serves as a direct tool of social or political Domination. Something very complex is going on there. So, to slowly come to an end, uh, uh, how, what's the ideological form of these new processes? Let me begin with something which, again, would have concerned Lenin, I already mentioned it. This, uh, and I don't think this is a superficial phenomenon, I'm not a moralist here. This, let's call it vulgarization of daily life. How? What things are possible? It is possible today to state things publicly, things which 15, 20 years ago it would not have been possible to state them publicly. Just the most obvious uh, example, uh, torture. Now we can debate it, even if you are against it. But it's like, should we torture terrorists and so on? Will we be productive? No. 20 years ago, it could have been unthinkable. Incidentally, that's why I like to emphasize that at a certain level, I am dogmatic. In what sense? The progress, if there is progress, I doubt, of society, is, means precisely that certain things are considered an achievement we don't debate. For example, would you really like to live in a society where you have to argue again and again that women shouldn't be raped. No, I would like to live in a society where when a man goes into this bullshit, you know, like, oh, but women secretly really enjoy it, they pretend not to like it. You don't even have to argue. The guy appears an idiot, you know. You laugh at him, what are you doing? Can I buy you a drink, whatever, idiot. And, uh, and that's why, again, the true horror of the torture debate is that it takes place publicly at all. So, uh, uh, I'm here talking not only about obvious example, Donald Trump, but this is a general movement with today's conservatives. And it's, maybe it gives us, I like to define myself as uh, referring to Lenin without irony, well-behaved, gentle 
Lenin-ish, you know, good manners. Lenin-ish with good manners. I was so shocked, my Polish friends told me, it's not a joke, check it on Wikipedia. You know uh, the great guy, uh, uh, now the de facto boss of uh, Poland, Jaroslaw Kaczynski. Incidentally, I'm really evil. I will tell you, your secret services, that if they did, but I don't believe they did, if they really organized the shooting down of the plane which killed his brothers, couldn't they aim better and kill all other brothers? He was not here. Yeah, but somehow, okay, they should advise him also. I know, I know. So, you know, when in, uh, when in 97, his party, justice and uh, law, whatever, won elections, he was asked, not in a private cafeteria meeting where we all talk dirty, on TV and in an interview to Gazeta Viborsha, the biggest newspaper. He was asked, what is your program? You know what was his answer? I repeat it literally. A very vulgar common expression in Polish, I think it is teraz kurwa mi, which to explain it means it's our turn to fuck the whore. It's from very vulgar, low-class military circles where, you know, when there are three soldiers wait in line, let's say we are soldiers, <laughs> the prostitute and you finish and then I say terra curva me, like, it's my turn to do it. But isn't it a little bit shocking that the guy who presents himself to be the beacon, the model of Catholic morality and so on and so on, talks, I repeat it, in public like this. There, you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't uh, get confused uh, about uh, Trump. People all, always say, but how could he be, present himself as a Christian conservative when he talks in such a dirty, undignified way? But I claim this is the Christian conservative identity. Precisely this combination of public manners and this obscene, dirty background which is coming back again and again. And uh, certain forms of communism also are not, are not alien to this obscenity. I'm always interested when obscenity penetrates the public speech. It's never innocent. For example, let me take an example, because Maoists now hate me, they claim I'm a traitor and so on, so okay, let me go to the end in this treaty. And uh, a quote from Mao. In July 1959, when it was clear that the, uh, the Great Leap Forward is a catastrophe, millions died and so on, Mao called a party conference in Lushan, where it was, he proposed that they do self-criticism like they admit uh, their mistakes. And again, we are not talking about small mistakes. We are talking about responsibility for millions of death. And Mao admits the first to admit that he is the main responsible. But then, and this is not again dirty talk, this is in the collected works of Mao. You can find it on the web. These are the final three lines of Mao's speech. Uh, I'm sorry for the use of vulgar term fart, which means flatulence and so on. Mao concludes his speech like this. The chaos caused was on a grand scale, millions of deaths, and I take responsibility 
Comrades, you must all analyze your own responsibility. If you have to cheat, cheat. If you have to fart, fart. You will feel much better for it. <laughs> now I just ask a simple question. I'm not making the usual case Mao was primitive and so on. He was not. He was highly educated in classical culture and so on. But why exactly at this point when he was talking about responsibility for millions of dead, he took recourse to this extremely vulgar uh, to this extremely vulgar metaphor. So again, the, uh, the sad lesson of all this, the really sad lesson, is that uh, today, at least in the so-called developed West, we live in this tension. On the one hand, ultra-political correctness, like uh, one word wrong, you are all that stuff, you must know it, heard about it. On the other hand, this explosion of vulgarity of vulgarity in public speech and this is connected with another thing which is sad for me as a Leninist politically if we already talk about Kaczynski it is today as if in our crazy world to impose minimal workers welfare measures you need a right populist government to do it like the same Kaczynski you know that his party in Poland, two years ago or when, imposed did something extraordinary. They imposed, they lowered the age of retirement, they make much better healthcare freely available, I mean more money, better conditions for student loans. No moderate leftist would dare to do this. And on the other hand, the opposite side, if you want a really efficient austerity politics, you need left, even, even radical left in power as in Greece. This was an ingenious operation by EU to allow Syriza to stay in power. If conservatives were to be in power, Syriza would have organized explosive uh, uh, demonstrations and so on and so on. In this way it functions. So, to really conclude, who is the enemy today? Lenin would always ask, I'm really concluding, don't be too nervous. Who is the enemy today? Ideology. We really live in a cynical era, which means, first, the hegemonic ideology today, at least in our half-educated circles and so on, uh, presents itself, that's a nice paradox, as critique of ideology. The moment you propose something which, of course, by the existing global capitalist criteria, is perceived as ideological, you want, I don't know, more socialism, they, ooh, this end will end up in gulag, you are ideologists, and so on and so on. I had, and this is, I think, a nice conclusion, if you agree, I had, a couple of months ago, I was not in a good mood there, I'm very self-critical, a debate with British liberal writer, Will Self, a wonderful name, that's his name, Will and Self. <laughs> and he claims that this is his true name. Okay, comes from perverted family, whatever. But, uh, uh, and we had the debate, and he conceded to me that we are approaching a crisis ecologically, socially, that in 10, 20, at least maximum 40 years from now, it will be a collapse, crisis, and so on. Then I asked him, okay, but uh, uh, what can we do? 
And he said nothing. Just don't talk about any revolutionary radical act. It will end up in catastrophe. All we can do is, he said, uh, very modestly, uh, become aware of the dangers, pay our taxes, be good citizens, that's important, and enjoy as much private life as we can. He said the only thing to do today, he used very vulgar English words, which I learned later, meant basically sit down at home, drink beer and masturbate, something like that. <laughs> I, so he didn't deny anything. Then when I asked him, why not nonetheless do something? He did something so disgusting, he appealed to the people, there were almost thousands of them, and said, how do you all have cell phones? Okay, and that, that was the argument for him. Do you know that all your cell phones use coltan, which is mined under terrible conditions in Congo? So we are all complicit in it. This, much more than denial of problems, liberal capitalism is wonderful and so on, this is the ultimate, most efficient form of ideology today, I think. You admit everything, you know, catastrophe is coming, up and down and so on. Just, we are all complicit. That's why, incidentally, I also oppose to that standard ecological politics. We are all responsible. So, instead of raising big systemic questions, no, the questions are, did you recycle all your Coca-Cola cans? Did you put aside all newspapers? You see, this is again ideology at its purest. It admits the problem, but at the same time, it makes you co-responsible so that you don't blame the system, and it offers you an easy way out. I saw, you have here, I saw it with horror. I'm not a terrorist, but if I were to be a terrorist, I would bomb it. Uh, you have also here, close to here, Starbucks, no? You have them here. Yeah. Okay, I don't know if they play this game here, but in the West, they play this ecological game. Oh, they have in the West posters which say, okay, our cappuccino is a little bit more expensive, but 1% goes to some stupid Guatemala children, the other percent to save some forest. Isn't this wonderful? The message is, we no longer have that old duality, you are a consumer, but then you should also be a good citizen. No, the price for good social conscience and care, solidarity, is included into the commodity itself, you know. Pay a little bit more and you can be there. So this, this immobilizing cynicism is ideology at its, at its purest today, and also, unfortunately, at its most efficient. And that would be, for me, the big, if you want, problem of Leninist politics today. And insight. First, admit all these antagonisms. For example, let's take someone who, that's the irony of all ironies, calls himself a Leninist, a right-wing Leninist, Steve Bannon, you know, the alt-right figure. Incidentally, I have there a special attachment. Do you know he was in that? Uh, once he made the statement that I'm his favorite Marxist. <laughs> Sorry. But then I said, this guy knows what good theory is, so let's look into this. You know, uh, that's the tragedy of the left. She nonetheless said some things 
that in Democratic Party, apart from some uh, Sanders supporters, they are afraid to say, you know how he, he Steve Bannon, old right guy, you know how he reacted to, to, uh, to uh, Trump's, uh, 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 Trump's uh, 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 tax proposal? He exploded. He said, no, the opposite. Raise the taxes for big companies over 40% and so on. You know that he opposed saving the big banks? He said something which is simply true. He said, this is socialism for the rich. We don't need that and so on. So this is for me the greatest tragedy today, that we have the left full of this politically correct stuff with which, with its goals, I totally agree. I'm just don't like this fanatical moralizing tone, and we have then the right, even the extreme right, taking over whatever remains of, of social politics and so on. That's for me that and as Leninists, we would have to approach this That's why I support Bernie Sanders. I don't have any illusions about him. But in the United States, the miracle of Bernie Sanders was that he mobilized small farmers and so on, exactly those who are not the usual gang of less liberal supporters, but who would have otherwise probably voted even for Trump and so on. That would be, if you agree, I don't know how is it in your country, but at least in the so-called developed West, the, the, the leftist, uh, leftist uh, answer. If we don't solve this problem, of how not just to castigate, okay, I hate that they are disgusting, the radical right. Who, who is so disgusting, it's a matter of choice. Like, they say Trump is horrible. I say, yes, but if Trump is impeached, United States will get Mike Pence, who is definitely worse, I think. God save Trump, not Mike Pence, you know. So, uh, maybe we should change the entire metaphor. It is a really conclude now, just the last thought. Uh, uh, did you uh, notice how in popular theological Christian fundamentalist fictions there is now a topic which is popular? Those of left behind, you know. God does, uh, God, uh, 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 God takes to himself a certain percentage of people and we are those who remain to face the horrors of Abraham. Incidentally, you don't only get kids here, like the series left behind, you also get, I forgot, is it leftovers or remainders, a relatively solid TV series, which is not so terribly bad. But I claim that as often, God here listened to the big capital, because in a very primitive leftist reading, I claim that this topic of left behind is the central topic of today's capitalism below. More and more of us are left behind. And here, to conclude, the proper Leninist position would not have been that of Negri. With all my respect of Negri and Hart, but they are too much accelerationists. I remember once Negri gave an interview on Italian TV, standing in front, uh, uh, Maybe you, Lorenzo, know it of a, I think, closed factory where some workers demonstrated and he said, look at them. They are dead, but they don't know it. You know, this idea that he even said once that the most speculative capitalists dealing with futures are almost in communism, are much more progressive than No, I'm tempted to say that this strategy 
of uh, going further in capitalism is wrong and misleading. Like you can even progressive versions. For example, already 30, 40 years ago, I remember when I was young, there was a tendency among American feminists to redress the oppression of women by including somehow, it was not clear how, uh, homework, taking care of children, home, into ways that it should be counted as creating value and included in that. Or you have a crazy idea of some capitalist ecologists claiming that all natural resources on earth should be somehow quantified. For example, all the air is worth, is worth okay, 1,000 trillions, whatever. And then somehow you include it into the price. I think this solution is, it may appear worthwhile at a limited level, but no, we should be more radical here. This is just universal commodification, it doesn't work. So, really last two sentences, uh, you're skeptical, I think. No, I'm liberal. They were already warming the bed in for you. Okay, now that's why uh, I think our answer to those who claim, but okay, I was so critical about the left today, why don't we just play the left Fukuyama's game? Why don't we say revolution is impossible, so let's play our small games, more rights for the gay and lesbian here, a little bit better healthcare there? I think this is the true utopia today. I think that. It's not enough to say somehow we will survive it. I think that at a series of levels, from ecology to biogenetics, who will control that, and so on and so on, to intellectual property and so on, the system is approaching its end. And if we do nothing, it will change radically, but in a way that we don't like it. If you don't believe me, believe at least Hollywood. Hollywood is almost obsessed by this idea. Hunger Games, uh, Elysium, and so on. I think Hollywood is onto something there. And that's what should be our political stance today. We are again at the time of Lenin in 1915. So my idea is, even if it appears that you cannot do something now, first, you can do. My advice is, you know what, I developed in some of my books, look Obama. No illusions about Obama presidency, but the way he reactualized the idea of universal health care was obviously something quite traumatic for the United States. He was even brought to the Supreme Court. The art is not to directly come with the utopian so-called request. The art is to find a very specific issue which in itself may appear innocent. But, you know, if you really try to do it, then it leads to other issues and so on and so on. So, when I say, don't be afraid that Leninist time is on our side, I don't mean this in an optimist way. I mean this in a very pessimist way. We know that the change will come. And all we can do as leftists is not to bring some new world, but at least to prevent the forthcoming catastrophe. I am deeply sorry for being too long. On the other way, fuck off, what can you do? You can do it. <laughs> Thank you very much.
questions or disagreements, but remember, you know, you pay, uh, uh, pay much, pay expensive for disagreement. It will send you to... No, just to... Don't be afraid. Two hours, yeah, probably. Yeah. No, no, no. Just, just to tell you something. I didn't have time, I didn't want to be even longer, but how much I learned from you here, from your guys. Like, uh, uh, uh. uh. My good friend Artem, then, of course, Oksana, then, of course, Victor Martin from the Freud Museum, and so on. Things are happening here. And I'm proud to be here. And I think that all... My God, are there some people from Moscow here? Hope not too many. Because I still believe in that old spirit that Leningrad is... They use another name here, but I always forget that Leningrad is more, more intellectually alive than, than Moscow. I'm simply proud of you. Now, this is not a real child. Leningrad? Will it be intellectually alive until they close down the European University completely? I hope we will all be attentive to these processes. Uh, okay. Any questions? Or we just uh, sure. call it a day? Pavel Arsenyev? Yeah, Mike, uh, take mic. Can someone help me with the mic? Olga. Okay, I think it's Mike. I have a very simple question, um, uh, but. Uh, in a few steps. Uh, do you drink coffee, Slavoj? Do I? Do you drink coffee? Uh, from time to time? Just from... If you ask me, I will be very aggressive, not against you. Because uh, hundreds of psychoanalysts in Argentina <laughs> even develop theories of how I'm on cocaine. No, I'm an ordinary man. No. I never in my life did I take any drugs, not even my uh, okay. okay. It was about coffee. It's not the whole question. Okay. Even if you don't drink coffee, no, no, neither without milk nor yeah, yeah. without cream, uh, probably you sometimes write something uh, about uh, for the presentation, for example. And then you all, maybe you agree with me that you are already somehow technicized. And if you drink coffee, you would even be on the chemical level changed uh, in terms of your mind. Yeah. So, and then, then this is, uh, this is differs from some technicism only in sense of quantity. If we are already technicized, and some of us who are drinking coffee already chemically changed our mind, so maybe uh, we are not that far from uh, some post-communism from the very beginning of humanity. Expression of some instrumental power. I know, but why do you think that that describing drinking coffee is very simple answer, Marxist traditional that we give you. Why do you think that the technical chemical level is so important? What if I tell you that we don't drink coffee, I even don't believe just for some uh, biological organic needs? We drink, drinking coffee is absolutely also an ideological experience. Most of my friends who drink coffee don't even like coffee. But for them, the matter is that it's a social event and so on and so on. So I don't think that, instead of coffee, it can be, I don't know, cognac, whatever you want. Okay, uh, thank you, but you are writing. So you use some tools. Yes. Some, and this yes. is not only 
it's not only cognitive technique, but it's also some outer technique. Yeah, and so you include some. Okay, you ask the yourself. question, you got an answer. But, but again, why, why do you think that? You know, it's a question of causality in the sense of we all know that so-called higher activities have to have a lower material basis. Like when you think, you breathe, you do, and so on. The question is, can you reduce higher activities? Like, it's the same as if you tell me you are thinking now. But when you th are thinking, your neurons are running there and so on and so on. Okay, but can you reduce it to that? Or I'm here maybe even a Hegelian idealist. I think that there is an autonomous causality of higher regions. You cannot simply reduce the higher level to the lowest. Okay, thank you. Well, other questions? Uh, is there a question? Yeah, Aksana. Yeah. Aksana has a question. Uh, uh, you will also want to I, say. I would love to hear some uh, optimistic still uh, at points. Uh, uh, like, what about the uh, authority of communism, which is marked in the title? Uh, is a communist um, uh, also, will it be post-human or, uh, or rather human or how do you see uh, our perspectives? No, 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 I think the reason I mentioned those jerks like Zuckerberg and so on is that, you know, it's an open situation. Paradoxically, I'm a pessimist and an optimist. Pessimist in the sense that there is a process of capital, uh, there, that Capitalism is extremely... Look, the whole history of Marxism is the history of the same mistake. They get something and then they think, oh, that's the limit of capitalism. But then capitalism reintegrates it. It's already Marx who for some time thought, oh, he even gives him one of his letters this reason. Capitalism is British industry. The key element of British industry is textile. They get uh, a cotton for textile from slaves south, uh, uh, south of United States. So, if the North wins, if slavery is abolished in the United States, it will be almost a mortal blow to capitalism. We have the last stage, the latest stage. Some of my feminist friends who say capitalism is patriarchy, which means sexual struggle for women's rights and so on, means the end of capitalism. I think that capitalism has an incredible ability to reintegrate all this. Capitalism can invent its own fake figure of femininity. And so in this sense, uh, but this process nonetheless cannot go to the end. I claim that today, with, again, these new tendencies, I don't idealize them, but so-called cooperative commons and so on, it's clearly that, look already at uh, private intellectual properties. I think capitalism will never be able fully to integrate this. People are already at a vulgar level, uh, pirating, copying, so you cannot. You know, it doesn't work as a commodity. Knowledge is something like, if we have, if we have a glass of water, then if I drink it, you cannot drink it, and vice versa. But if you have an information, if I give it to you, it's not less, it's maybe even more information. It's a different law, and the big problem, that's what stupid, dangerous capitalists, not so stupid as Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, and so on, are aware of that. I see there a real limit to 
capitalism. Now, uh, how to do it? I like, I hate, sorry, I hate false optimism, you know? I think that the true optimism should be precisely paint the dark picture and then leave it open. Leave it open like, uh, it's not for me as a theoretician to give you at the end the good news. The good news should be how do you react to the bad news, or to answer you with a joke. I love one of the greatest contributions of American culture to world civilization, I think, vulgarity, I warn you, are those wonderful doctor's jokes. You know, like, the doctor tells you, I have news, do you want first bad news and then good news, no? And then, of course, they are jokes, like, like I'm your doctor, you come to me, I tell you, okay, first the bad news. We discovered you have cancer, you will be dead in two months. Then you ask me, what can be the good news then? And I tell you, the good news is that when we were investigating you, we also discovered that you have Alzheimer's, so we will forget the bad news before you come home. <laughs> so what I'm saying is that the trick, the trick is, the first thing is not to bring some optimist picture but to discern an emancipatory potential in bad news themselves. So where is the emancipatory potential? I didn't... I mean, I mean uh, when you are in prison, there will be... Sorry, sorry. Uh, seriously, sorry. Okay. I will give you another example. When we talk about robotization, automatization of production, in what strange epoch are we living when this is perceived as a problem? Oh, many unemployed people... Can you imagine a better news than robotization? In a minimally normal society, it means we all would have more free time and so on and so on. Isn't something fundamentally wrong with our society when we perceive something which could be a great contribution to our freedom as catastrophic bad news and so on? In this sense, I go to all of it, the pessimist picture that I painted, you know, uh, all that mind control, digitalization, and so on and so on. It's all very ambiguous. So it's for me not so much of telling another story, death, but to see from a different perspective the very processes that I was describing, to see a potential emancipatory dimension in them. You will have to pay me more if you want to. I'll steal your mind because of mine was taken, but I just to follow up. Then. Uh, I think the only immense potential in, in everything you said is that you know it and you tell this to us, so that we have this uh, superior, superior knowledge. Uh, which no, I mean of, of these uh, uh, ambiguities uh, and of these uh, this negativity. But but this means that you have to come to, uh, to come to power in order for for, uh, for there to be hope. So when will you come to power? No, the problem is not just to come to power. Look what happens to Syriza when it came to power. Although, as a Leninist, I must say, now come the best totalitarian news, what I still admire in Lenin, although for most liberals this is horror, it's his absolutely ruthless decision, we have to take power. And I think the left has to accept this game. I'm sick and tired of those soft leftists who say, no, it's better to be in opposition, or, or as even my good friend Alain Badiou says, you know, authentic 
politics is outside state, you know, you have to have your islands of authentic creativity, whatever. No, a true leftist should say, with all the risks and so on, I, is possible I take power. Okay, maybe I will fail, but through this failure, something new may emerge, and so on. I think that against some simplified versions of Marx, Marx and Lukács, we should again return to Hegel, and this is clear from Stasmism and so on, that socialist communist revolutions are not self-transparent. They are also caught in this dialectic. You want one thing, the result is the opposite one, and so on. And, uh, and I think that we should risk and accept this dialectic. That, you know, it will, you, you, you must try and fail and try and fail before maybe something new will emerge. But, 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 but don't be, on the other hand, too much of pessimist. Look, let me tell you something. Who would have thought ten years ago even possible for something like Syriza to happen? Who, for something like Podemos to happen? For something like the Arab Spring to happen. Of course, we immediately see the limits, but we should ruthlessly, or not so much. Uh, I think the true result of Occupy Wall Street was then Bernie Sanders and so on. And not Trump? Sorry? I think it was Trump. Because uh, it, because this it was is the problem with you Russians. You like this paradoxes and so on. And so on. <laughs> but in some sense, you are right. You know, in what sense you are right? That I really think that Trump is the result of the failure of the democratic That's what I said. left. Yes, absolutely. He opened up the space for it. That's why I don't like the way Hillary Clinton now is playing this almost Stalinist game. Find the culprit. You know, it's Bernie Sanders or you, you Putin, Russia, and so on. Now I don't know. Maybe you did what Americans are doing all the time <laughs> and also try to interfere. But that's clearly not the main cause. The main cause was the way Hillary totally tried to sidetrack Trump to avoid and then all all those, of course, not all okay, not many of them did actually vote for Trump, but they abstained from voting then in the elections. You had a question there? The, the gentleman here yeah, yeah, has he for a long time. What is the meaning of life for you? <laughs> short, short question, great. Everyone should imitate. First, no, I would complicate here. Uh, first, I think life is just a biochemical phenomenon it doesn't have in itself meaning. You mean human spiritual life. Human spiritual life has, I wouldn't say meaning, but it's a much more, it's a beautiful question if I were time to, well, I cannot be sure. No, I, what I would have said is that, uh, is that the origin of human life is not that we know something better more than animals. It's a failure. And the, for example, for me, if you want a minimal technical metaphor for human life, it's boomerang. Because, you know, officially it's to hit whatever, a kangaroo or whatever. 
But then it's clear that the whole point is to miss the kangaroo and catch it when it comes back. And I think uh, that uh, for something to have meaning doesn't mean it serves a higher cause. It precisely means even the opposite, that something which first in the stupid animal kingdom serves a cause becomes a goal in itself. Let's take a very concrete example, sex. If you just uh, make love for, for uh, procreation. procreation, reproduction, you are following age, it's nothing. True love is when you said, no, when I make love to you or we make love or whatever, it's an achievement in itself. It becomes, it, that's when it becomes meaningful, even absolute. So for me, the human basis of human creativity is not that we are more complex. We do something to achieve something else, something else. It's on the opposite, that we take something which originally was just an instrument and make it a goal in itself. And we say, that's already it. I know this didn't satisfy you, but you caught me unprepared. Yeah. <laughs> Last question, uh, Andre. Thank you. For, uh, from what you have said today, I have an impression that uh, uh, things are set up this way that first you have to, have a, to acquire a political power and then you ha can elaborate on some uh, progressive modernist or whatever you call it project. So it seems a situation of some kind of a dead end that all leftist projects seem to be doomed because Lenin had this modernist project because he had this Bolshevik party and he had power. Elon Musk has his own uh, a little bit creepy uh, modernist project uh, because he also has a great commercial and technological power. So, uh, do you think it's it's really a dead end for a like uh, grounded uh, grassroots activism? Thank you. Uh, it's good that you pronounce the words at the end. No, I have nothing against grassroots activism. one of my words. Yeah. Uh, but my problem, uh, my problem with grassroots activism is that, nonetheless, I don't think, that I think that, the, for example, in Greece, the great reproach to Syriza was, you become just a ruling party like another, you betray your grassroots connections, and so on and so on. But for me, the true challenge of the left is not to keep the links with grassroots alive, but to build a better, I use on purpose this horrible word, to build a better, alienated, autonomous state bureaucracy. For me, the big problem of Stalinism is not, is not too much bureaucracy. Stalinism, the problem of Stalinism was that it didn't have a good bureaucracy. That's why it needed all the time an emergency state, one perch after the other, to make things function. I know this is horrible for most of you, and I'm trying to provoke you, but in my ideal place to live, it wouldn't be some grassroots community where every afternoon I would have to go to some meetings, how we educate our children, how we do this, that. Fuck it, I want to live a nice alienated life. Some anonymous mechanisms 
provide school, uh, uh, hospitals, water, whatever, and I can read my books and watch my films and write my books and so on. Uh, and that's my totally crazy solution that the myth to be abandoned is this myth of local or whatever transparency. And even, uh, even with, now I'll provoke you even more, even with reference to uh, refugees and other immigrants like shock of cultures, I hate this liberal dogma that we should get to know them, understand them. No, we should learn. It's wonderful if you get to know some of them. But you will never understand them because we don't understand ourselves even, my God. I would like to live in a society where, let's say, a big house, apartment block, like those wonderful, they have them in Moscow, you know, those imitations of Stalinist Baroque, you know, those, all those Lomonosov universities. I live in one small apartment, near me is a, a, is a Jew, then an Arab, then a black guy, and we mostly politely ignore each other. From time to time, I meet one guy or the other, maybe we become friendly, but why this eternal pressure? I should understand you, I should understand you. Give me some breathing space. If we will not do this, we will get caught into this eternal liberal dynamics of did you do enough to understand me, and so on and so on. The true anti-racism is not I should understand you, it's I don't understand you and nonetheless I tolerate you. I can be friendly to you, and so on, and so on. I know this is not popular, what I said now, but you know what? I'm 68, have heart problems, so who cares? I will soon join, not go. You very <laughs> You sound very utopian. Why do you think this is utopia? My God, ignoring each other, is this utopia for you? In what sense? In what sense is this utopia for you? I try to live like this. In my apartment block where I live, I mean, this is this is exactly what you have said about uh, uh, about uh, those. I mean, uh, this is sounds exactly like you, the things you said about those left activists that uh, try to strive for more rights for LGBT plus or for some more healthcare. Yeah. So it's like. No, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I didn't say this is all we do. My program is not just let's ignore each other. My problem is precisely that in order to have a true and very much uh, old-fashioned enlightenment universalists. But what I'm saying is that to have a true universality, it should be a limited on political cause and so on, not this type of uh, deep engagement or whatever. I like alienation. I like to have a political, like my, this is also, it's obscene maybe to talk about this, but that's why if there was, it looked that there was, a love affair between Lenin and, uh, who is the guy? Uh, Ines Armand, yes. That's what I like about that. They kept it out. It was even, it looks tolerated by Nadezhda Krupskaya, but it wasn't none of that, uh, none of that early European avant-garde bullshit, you know, like sexual will be political, political will be sexual, and so on, all together. It was made in a discreet way, maybe not even discreet, but people polite. People didn't talk about it and so on. That's what I mean. And of course this is not my political activity. Although you almost seduced me into it would be nice to 
make a political party for more ignorance, more alienation. <laughs> Yeah, you know, this politeness kind of who you started with it and, uh, and, and, uh, and we end on this, know uh, uh, that even if you do uh, a revolution or a war, always try to do it politely, like Lenin did. No, no, but Lenin knew where to be polite, no? But nonetheless, to come back to the beginning, so my, I confess that you confused me and my ultimate answer to you is, no, Pagani. No. <laughs> <laughs>